0: Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, host of the Art Angle Podcast. We're off this week in observation of Labor Day, but to celebrate the long-awaited post-lockdown reopening of New York's museums, we thought we'd re-air a previous episode to get you in the museum-going mood once again. It's a conversation with the curator Barbara Haskell about the extraordinary life and uncanny legacy of the mystical painter Agnes Pelton, whose exhibition at the Whitney Museum is once again on view through November 1st. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Many of the paintings, in a sense, are almost like emblems of spiritual enlightenment.
0: Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Art.net News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Right now, with the specter of the coronavirus upending life as we know it, We'll be using this podcast as a way to try to shed light on how those of us working in the arts are coping. At the same time, we're also going to be looking at what lessons and what consolations art history has to offer for a world in disorienting flux. And that's where we're gonna start today. Art history, as many know, is filled with scenes of individuals leaving behind civilization to seek solace in the wilderness, the realm of the unknown, Right now, in a show at the Whitney Museum of American Art, is the artist herself, Agnes Pelton, who in the middle of her life set off into the wilderness, moving to the California desert in search of spiritual enlightenment. The canvases that she painted there are remarkable. Semi-abstract paintings of strange vessels floating above the landscape, glowing veils, fiery vistas, and other images that seem beamed from another world. The show is part of a wider trend of rediscovering particularly female artists who worked in occult themes, responding to the rapidly changing world of the 19th and early 20th century, which we talked about a few episodes back. So who was Agnes Pelton? What shaped these strange and beguiling artworks? And what can we learn from her paintings? To talk about the artist's life and legacy, I'm joined by Whitney curator Barbara Haskell, who worked with the Phoenix Art Museum's Gilbert Vicario, to organize this new edition of the show. Because of the health crisis, we're having to conjure Barbara's presence by telephone, so please bear with us. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Barbara. Thank you. So before we dive into the fascinating story of Agnes Pelton and her art, we should point out that any listeners who have never heard of this artist before are not alone. In fact, for years, she was all but forgotten. So how did you personally first come to learn of her work?
1: It it actually was interesting. It was in the late, late 1990s, and I was introduced to it by a dealer in Los Angeles who sent me a couple of images over the internet, and I fell in love with the work. And the the trajectory of how the Whitney ended up getting its first Agnes Pelton painting in 1995 is -hmm. interesting because, as you say, she was totally unknown. And I presented her work to the then Acquisition Committee, who had never heard of the work, and turned it down. And I somehow believed in it. I thought that this was something worth pursuing. And I came back to them a second year, and they also turned it down. And I came back to a third year to the committee. And finally, Leonard Lauder, who was at that point chairing the committee, said, you know, Barbara believes in this work. I do not want her to come back a third year. Let's buy it. So the two works have been in the museum's collection for over 20 years, and they have been on almost continuous view in the new building since we opened in 2015.
0: So it's often helpful to know about an artist's life when looking at their work, but with Pelton, it may be especially critical. In fact, she had a particularly dramatic upbringing, like something out of Dickens. Can you tell us a little bit about the family scandal that she was born into?
1: Yeah, yes, and it was dramatic. And as she said, it, it was a scandal that cramped her mother's life and it cramped her life. So it does figure very importantly in her decision, I think, to seek a different meaning in life away from the physical into something more spiritual. So it happened to her maternal grandparents. Theodore Tilden was a very important newspaper editor and was the protege of Ward Beecher. They were part of the same community and very good friends. At one point, Theodore Tilden's wife began an affair with Ward Beecher who, in his sermons, was you know preaching celibacy and morality. And when the affair became known, it began to be rumored within the Brooklyn community in which they lived, Tilden sued Ford Beecher for alienation of affection. But at that point, Elizabeth Tilden refused to testify against her pastor. And mm-hmm. so the case was a hung jury. Theodore Tilden was totally humiliated that Parents ended up sending their daughter, Florence, to Europe. And then eventually, Tilden himself left, went to Paris, and died impoverished. (laughs) Meanwhile, Agnes Pelton's mother, Florence, was in Europe. And she met a Louisiana expatriate, a wealthy expatriate, but a kind of 'er ne'er-do-well, who it turned out was probably bipolar. But they had Agnes Pelton in Stuttgart. And the problems with the family, the mother, Florence, they came back to Brooklyn Pelton was unhappy in Brooklyn, went back to Europe, so that Agnes Pelton saw her father very infrequently, and he died when she was age 10 from a morphine overdose. So this whole situation of the trauma, the scandal of the grandparents, the mother that became in a way a recluse, still very spiritually inclined, but excommunicated from the church, set the stage for her to, be, to turn inward which she did. She was essentially homeschooled beginning at about age 14. She started studying at the Pratt Institute with Arthur Wesley Dow, the famous art educator who had went on to teach George O'Keefe and many other abstractionists. Dow was one of the people who taught that art should be more an expression of the artist's experience of nature or experience of subjects. It shouldn't be illustrational. So Hmm. that that was Pelton's first teaching. She went to Europe for a year. She studied in Rome. She came back. She was part of a group of artists that began to paint kind of mystical figures and landscapes. The most famous is Arthur B. Davies. So Pelton's early work was in that same mode of what they called
0: introspectives.
1: There were these figures kind of communing with landscape, very dreamy, mystical, very symbolist.
0: Can we talk a little bit about her psychology? How did this very unusual upbringing and traumatic family history shape the way that she was looking at the world and the way that she was presenting herself to the world?
1: Well, my supposition is that it encouraged her to turn inward. She came from a very spiritual family. So the idea of finding meaning in some sort of spiritual experience was part of her upbringing, but she had to turn to non-traditional ways to find it. So, Early on, for example, she dressed in these very ethereal Greek kind of toga costumes and began early on to study occult literature. So by 1920, she was beginning in her journals to transcribe longhand passages from Theosophy, Madame Blavatsky, and other kinds of mystical thinking. And the idea of finding meaning in connection with what she called the divine principle or some divine harmony and transcendent calmness and and connection with the world was very much, I think, tied to this scandal that had marred her mother's life and that she felt marred her life and made her kind of in a way reject the normal kinds of avenues to fame and fortune that one finds in material things.
0: Well, one thing I would like to point out is that before she took this mystical turn, she actually seemed to have the beginnings of a successful art career. Her painting was actually included in the 1913 Armory Show, which is, I think, most famous to the world because it's where Duchamp's New Descending a Staircase was debuted.
1: No, absolutely. She was in the Armory Show She was part of a Nerdler gallery show that kind of launched this symbolist group. So, yes, she was connected to a group of people who received some recognition for their work. So her move, which she did in 1920 to Long Island, where she moved into an abandoned windmill, was something Mm -hmm. radical. Part of it, her mother had died so that her one connection to the physical world was eliminated. Then she turned elsewhere and went out to Long Island where she wasn't necessarily a recluse, but she definitely at that point cut off all relations with the art world. She was really isolated out there and and no longer had the connection with people that she'd known earlier.
0: You mentioned how she kind of fell under the spell, so to speak, of Madame Blavatsky, who was the doyen of theosophy and this kind of den mother of the occult scene in America. Who else proved to be a kind of a, a mystical draw on her thinking?
1: A very good question. So after Blavatsky's death, Theosophy sort of has splintered into several groups. And one of them was a philosophy called Agni Yoga, which was Agni meaning fire. So it was fire yoga. And it was founded by Nicholas and Helena Rorick and was based on the idea of fire as being the kind of symbol of the life force, a fire being something so powerful and yet dematerial. It was a symbol of the spiritual journey to this other harmonious divinity. She became very involved in that, uh, Hmm. continued to read theosophy and the other female practitioners of theosophy. So she had a wide range of literature that she looked to, but it was primarily theosophy
0: and Agni Yoga. I think that most people are probably more familiar with Adam Blavatsky's worldview, which was really a synthetic combination of the world's religions into one kind of overstory of a, a kind of a divine path that is told through many different kinds of tellings. But Nicholas Rorich seems to be a, a, a much more niche spiritualist. And I, I was looking into him um, in preparation for talking to you today, and it seems that he has a little bit of, a, of an apocalyptic bent about him, where... Oh.
1: Yes, totally.
0: can, can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Well, he also was a kind of a conglomeration of various philosophies and various religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, kind of all mixed together. But he was a very messianic figure. He was a painter himself. He was an explorer. He had a, a wide range of careers. And then finally, this Agni Yoga, which he created with his wife, Helena, who transcribed the voices that she heard through a guru. And that formed the basis of Agni Yoga. But he was a, a very charismatic figure. And there's actually one painting that Pelton did of a guru-like figure. Hmm. Which from photographs, that looks like it was a portrait of, of Nicholas Rorick.
0: So what impact did all of these different kinds of teachers and mystics have on her art?
1: Well, it, it happened in two ways. One, I think it confirmed in her that there was a world that existed beyond the physical and that the goal of life was to connect with that world. And so in her dreams and meditation, she would have insights into her connection with that world. And many of the paintings, in a sense, are almost like emblems of spiritual enlightenment. They're her immediate vision of connection to the cosmos. She also began to incorporate symbols into her work that were part of this whole uh, mystical literature that she would read. So stars for Pelton. For example, was a symbol of, of Venus, the attainment of enlightenment, a symbol of the ultimate messenger of divine truth. She would use mountains, which she identified as mountains of aspiration. So the work is this very unusual combination of abstract forms and yet recognizable symbols. But the entire effect is of some sort of cosmic spiritual meaning, spiritual experience.
0: She seems to have drawn a little bit from a fellow Blavatsky protege, Kandinsky, who was thought of it then as the father of abstract painting.
1: She was very influenced by Kandinsky. She read his book concerning the spiritual and art and the idea that the necessity of artists is to present the spiritual. And through form and color, artists can evoke impressions and feelings in the being of viewers, that abstraction is the way to convey this sense of spiritual experience. And that there are certain colors, in fact, that can provoke certain experiences. So Kandinsky definitely figured very prominently in
0: her work. And as I said, people often think of Kandinsky as the first abstract painter. But nowadays, we know that there is actually an artist who has a better claim for being the first abstract painter, and that's Hilma af Klint, the mystical Swedish artist, who has been very much in the news since she had that Guggenheim blockbuster.
1: Right. Here, are these two women that were virtually unknown in their lifetime who have emerged at the same moment in New York. It's it's a wonderful coincidence.
0: Did she know of Hilma af
1: Klint? No, she didn't. I think they both had a similar drive to express a spiritual reality. They both read Theosophy. They both read a lot of occult literature. The difference, I think, is that Pelton, she called her work abstract and it presents itself as abstract, but it does include recognizable images. So they're images of mountains, many stars. So there's a kind of accessibility that her work has. It engages people with a sense that there's a meaning that then they want to decipher.
0: At the same time, and this might be a a funny thing to say, but simultaneous to this mystical content, there's almost a kind of a Disney-esque friendliness to the composition. Yes,
1: absolutely. So these images of stars and mountains and swans and various recognizable elements do create a sense of kind of a magic fantasy, which is very accessible. You're absolutely right. It has a kind of Disney-like quality that kind of beckons people in. It allows people immediately to to understand that there's something there for them. So in
0: 1932, at the age of 50, Agnes Pelt moved to California to a tiny desert town outside of LA with the incredibly freighted name of Cathedral City. What was it that drew her to moving out to this desert town?
1: Well, I think there were two things. One, she was first attracted to Southern California, I think because of the spiritual colonies that were there. So she'd gone to visit earlier, 1928, she'd gone out to Pasadena where there was a group of similarly minded spiritualists. The desert itself was something, I think the emptiness, the sense of expansion, the quality of infinity, the light in the desert, that very warm light that that happens in Southern California. Those are all things that attracted her and became elements in a way in the paintings. The paintings have a kind of soft glow that almost reminds you of what the desert feels like in the late evening, early morning.
0: Can you describe the kind of paintings that she made out there?
1: So they were, as I say, she called them abstract and they included abstract elements, sort of biomorphic curvilinear abstract forms with this very intense coloration. She talked about painting as if she was painting with moth's wings on Mm. the canvas. Once she establishes her vocabulary in 1925, it isn't as if the vocabulary or the work changes a great deal. She remains very consistent to the experiences that she has in these dreams and meditations. She didn't paint for other people. She didn't paint for the marketplace. Mm. She, in order, in fact, to make money, She painted realistic portraits and realistic desert paintings that she told the tourists. So the the abstract work was the real work that she did. It was difficult for her to do. She would sometimes only be able to paint one day a week. It was very much drawing from herself, very personal, intense experiences, but they were hard to come by. It wasn't as if she would go into her studio and think, okay, today I'm going to have an inspiration. She had to wait for those inspirations to come and supported herself with these realistic paintings in the meantime.
0: Hmm. Did she ever sell her abstractions?
1: She sold a few of them, but for the most part, people didn't understand them. Um, For example, she sold a couple of paintings to a collector who lived near Santa Barbara. The collector gave the two paintings to the museum, who then, after Agnes Pelton died, didn't know what to do with them. They didn't want them. So they put them in a garage sale with a price tag of $40 on them. And it, during the course of the day, the price kept going lower and lower. Finally, the paintings were sold for $5. Wow.
0: Was she able to make ends meet or was it was it a challenge for her?
1: Well, she lived very frugally. And then through the sale of these tourist paintings, she was able to make a living. And as I said, she wasn't really concerned with fame and fortune in the normal way that artists... Think of it today. She really did the paintings for herself to clarify herself the visions that she had and her sense of how to achieve this level of spiritual enlightenment that she wanted other people to attain.
0: One symbol of how personal her painting was to herself was that she had one canvas that she called Mother of Silence, which is a Buddha-like figure enrobed in erratic colors. And she consider this to actually be a form of her mother that she could talk to as it was her mother, you know, that she could turn to for advice in times of distress.
1: Right. It was either her mother or the sense of the female spirit within occult literature. The literature that she was the most attracted to was written by women. So Mother of Silence is not only the mother, but the female spirit. And you're right, Helton felt that the painting itself had a living presence. And she would turn to it and ask its advice about what she should do with her art and with her life. She really felt it was a living icon for her.
0: Did she ever have any kind of curatorial interest? Was there ever a Barbara Haskell who came along during her lifetime and gave her a spotlight?
1: No, that's just it. That's why when she died, the work really went into oblivion. She didn't have a a dealer that promoted her. She didn't have an advocate. Early on, she did. In the 1910s, there was a woman named Alice Brisbane Thursby who came from a prominent family in New York and and really advocated for Pelton's work, organized exhibitions in Pelton's studio and brought people to see it. But later in life, when she moved out to Long Island and then when she moved to Cathedral City, she didn't have an advocate. And it wasn't until the late 1980s, early 1990s, that people began to look at it again and realize that here was a a body of work that was so magical that it it needed to be rediscovered.
0: And didn't her work start to be incorporated in the landmark show, the the spiritual and abstract art?
1: Yeah, that was one of the first exhibitions that she was in. And then in 1995, there was a one-person show that was organized by the Palm Springs Museum. Cathedral City was right to the east of Palm Springs, so it was sort of in her neighborhood. That show traveled to several museums around the country, but it didn't have the same traction that I think the show at the Whitney does.
0: One thing that I find very touching about her career is that she always would invent new shapes, new compositions, new ways of making her paintings and never repeating herself With a single exception, and that's in 1961, the year that she died, she recreated one very specific abstraction that she had made over a decade before of this glowing egg-like form suspended in a column of light.
1: Right, that's exactly right. So most of the paintings, each one is totally different. She never worked in a series, and it was one reason why the paintings were so difficult for her that she brought them out of her own visions. Each time it was a, a different experience and a, a different set of problems. The last painting that you mentioned, the title is called Light Center. And I think that's important. This idea of the glowing sort of orb of light in the center of the canvas, the circle being you know a symbol for her of infinity, a world of total harmony and, and oneness. And at the, at the very end, having the idea that she went back to an earlier canvas that so symbolize this notion of oneness and the circle being this sort of symbol of God in a way, the light of God, light of truth that she began to recreate at the very end and never finished the painting. So interestingly enough, the painting on view at the Whitney, you can see pencil lines and notations on the painting that she's made as if, you know, she's going to go back and finish the painting and that, that never was able to do it.
0: So when she died, was she alone? She never had
1: the heirs, never had a long term relationship, but she did have a funeral. A number of people from the community came. They put one painting up on the funeral, a work called The Blessed. Her nieces and nephews felt this painting symbolized her entering another level of existence.
0: Hmm. Historically, it seems that she may have been a little bit hampered. By the fact that she was always compared to George O'Keefe, who lived in the same remote kind of geography and seems to be tackling similar kinds of esoteric, quote unquote, feminine topics. Why do you think that she was the one who really captured the zeitgeist and, and Pelton lapsed into obscurity?
1: Well, partly George O'Keefe had the great advantage of having an advocate, a very powerful advocate in Alfred Stieglitz. So he, he Stieglitz pushed. O'Keeffe's career and made sure that, that it was prominent all the time. The other thing about O'Keeffe is, I think by the time she moved out to the desert, the work became realistic. She was able to combine realistic, sensuous forms like flowers and mountains with a very kind of hard edge painting technique. And the combination of the appealing subject matter and a strong advocate was what made O'Keeffe so popular during her lifetime. Helton had neither of
0: those. It seems that there is a resurgence of interest in art that tackles subjects that are slightly beyond the rationals. time where pretty much every certainty has fallen into question and everything is breaking down among this global crisis. People can't actually go see your show at the Whitney right now, but is there any lesson or any consolation that can be found in the story of Agnes Pelton and her art.
1: You're absolutely right. Well, I think in a way we're entering a a kind of surreal world that none of us have ever experienced in our lifetime, that people are more uncertain and more frightened than they've ever been before. And that in a sense, paradoxically, Pelton's work speaks to us more powerfully now than maybe it did even two weeks ago. Hmm. In the late 19th, early 20th century, there was a lot of dislocation urbanization, industrialization was changing the way people lived. And there was a lot of uncertainty about what the future would bring. So that we're now in another time when that's even perhaps more true than it was 100 years ago. And that the, the desire for meaning remains as intense as ever before. And Pelton's work speaks to that sense that there's a meaning beyond the physical that I think is very appealing for huge swaths of people especially at a time when the physical realities of our life seem not to be answering questions that need to be answered.
0: Well, Barbara, thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle this week in this very strange context to talk about a beautiful show that I hope people will go and see online at the Whitney. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.